HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. This is Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. I've been part of the HRN community for almost 10 years now, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, <laughs> because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, interesting stories from the world of culinary history. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. And this year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary. But we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member it's as simple as this. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting A Taste of the Past in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about salt, that essential mineral that we all need. And salt, of course, is, I mean, today salt is so popular, finishing salts, right? Fancy sea salts that one is sprinkled, that one sprinkles on your food after it's cooked or before it's served. And and delicious. It really does spark up uh, everything from sweets to savories. Well, this salt we're going to be talking about is from West Virginia. Hmm. And salt, indeed, was the first West Virginia mineral industry to be developed. It has quite a history, which we will we'll learn about. Um, it, and it, the salt there was being utilized long before the arrival of man. You know, I'm sure many of you have been to the mountains where you indulge in salt springs or hot springs. Well, these salt springs would pop up and deer and buffalo would travel to a salt spring and lick the rocks along the spring to get the salt they needed. This salt, near the town of Malden, West Virginia, became known as the Great Buffalo Lick. And 
The history then goes on and gets actually quite interesting. William Dickinson of Bedford County, Virginia, became one of the nation's first economic and geographic pioneers. And he decided to invest in the salt properties in that area. Uh, the Kanawha River, which I will, uh, will ask our guests more about on that. He was making salt by 1817 by drilling down into the Appalachian Mountains to tap in to this salt spring. Today, two seventh-generation descendants of William Dickinson, the siblings Nancy Bruns and Louis Payne, have reinvented the storied tradition, transforming the process by using natural and environmentally friendly concepts to produce small-batch finishing salts. On the very same family farm where William Dickinson lived and made salt, Nancy and Lewis have recaptured salt from this pristine 400 million year old ancient sea below the Appalachian Mountains. And Nancy is with me here today, speaking on the phone from West Virginia. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Linda. Glad to be with you. I was kind of traveling through a lot of, of the history. There's so much history on this. So I was kind of bouncing back and forth and, and didn't want to lose my way. I wanted to get to the point and save you, save information for you to share with us. Very, very interesting history and now interesting, interesting uh, future as well. What, can you tell us a little bit more about this history and, and what was happening then? Who who drilled and how'd they drill and how did they process salt? Um, sure, happy to. It is a long and um, colorful history. You have um, this ancient ocean, the Ipetus Ocean, which um, was formed early in Earth's history and um, was dried up when Pangaea formed. Um, so when the continents broke back apart, uh, this part of the, the dried up source here in North America was trapped here near Malden, West Virginia, and it's actually under quite a few states, and part of it is actually in Europe. Um, and it, the source is between 300 and 1,700 feet deep, and it's been redissolved by a freshwater aquifer, so I like to think of it as running under us like a, a briny river. So the ocean itself had dried up, but but now it's there is water in it, which has has dissolved the salt in the salt in the bed the bedrock Correct. of the exactly of the ocean. It, it actually runs through sandstone so um it's not like a big void you could go down there and swim in this but um so it 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 runs through sandstone and then it was it was pushing to the surface in these springs which as you said were found by large animals who came and um all mammals need uh, salt in their diets, right. uh, just like we do. So um, then Native Americans came because it was great hunting ground, and they needed salt for their survival as well. And then as the um, European settlers moved west across the Allegheny Mountains into the Kanawha Valley, they found this source. And to have this really, really valuable source away from a coast um, allowed the country, in a way, to to really expand so um, they started developing techniques to drill down to get this uh, brine and evaporate it. In big furnaces they used furnace. So they had. So there. It, I read that at some point in the early 1800s there were over 52 furnaces right around that 
Canal Valley right there. That's correct. There were, and over 100 different wells were drilled. Um, Early on, uh, because drilling techniques were developed later, they took out, hollowed out sycamore trees, and they drove them into the springs to get deeper, because the deeper you go, the richer the brine becomes. Mm. And they put a man down in it with a bucket and a shovel to drive that um, tree into the ground and basically case the well. And then later, the technology was developed here to um, actually drill through bedrock. And um, so that technology was used to drill the first oil well in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Wow. Well, obviously, these furnaces uh, had to be burning a lot of uh, important other, other important fossil fuels and, and, and wood from the area. Uh, what, what happened well, I mean, the the eventually the the salt interest industry seemed to fade away. It did. So it was the salt here in the Kanawha Valley, um, which actually became the largest salt producing region of the country in the mid 1800s, uh, was going down the Kanawha River into uh, the Ohio and into the city of Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati was also called Porkopolis because <laughs> of all the hog farming going on there. So um can't imagine why they gave up that name. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was a major market there. Um, so there were several things that played a factor in uh, the downfall of the industry. Um, one was that uh, Chicago in the 1850s was growing up as the center of meatpacking, which right. still is a major player today. Um, and it was hard to get salt uh, via river to Chicago uh, there were no um, reliable rail lines at that point. Um, then you have, uh, we had a major flood here in 1861 uh, where the river was 16 feet above flood stage. When that took out uh, quite a few of the manufacturers. And then, of course, the Civil War played a major factor in the, uh, in the 1860s. And we were Virginia at that time. Uh, it was an industry based on slave labor. And um, it was the manufacturers here were supplying the Confederate Army. Hmm. Um, so the Union Army came in and destroyed everything in their sight to, to disrupt that uh, flow of an important commodity. All right. So um, we rebuilt after the Civil War, the Dickinson family, as did a, a handful of others. But um, by the 1890s, we were the only producer and then we continued until 1945 when it just wasn't economically viable to compete with companies like Morton's. Yeah, well, I would imagine. Well, back in the, the heyday, in the early days, 1850s, I mean, it was, wasn't was the area called the salt capital of the, of the, well, yeah, of the world? Of the or? East, yeah. Of the East, it was. salt capital of the East, right. Um, and the salt won a very prestigious award as well. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, At the first World's Fair in London at the um, Crystal Palace, uh, Kanawha Salt was entered with other salts from around the world, and it won the award for the best uh, salt in the world. So um, we don't know which manufacturer it came from. But we know it was local salt. So um, well, when you and and I, I wanted you to say Kanawha. I I knew I wasn't going to get the 
the name of the valley and the <laughs> the river, right? Yeah, Kanawha. Kanawha, even though it's... One syllable shorter than it looks Than like. it's spelled, right. Okay, Kanawha. It's actually a, a Shawnee word that means... I was going to ask you if that's what it was, because I know <clears throat> they were in that area, right? The Shawnee They were, tribe. and um, they called it that because it was the place of the Great White Rock, which we take to mean salt. Salt, right. Because they would... It, the evidence showed that they would... Uh, take kettles of the water and boil it down as yes. well, right? So it's, yes. it's been going on for a while. It well, has. Uh, so this was your family's, you know, your family through back through the generations, their, their business, and, and um, you have a very direct connection to food, and, and obviously salt was important to you in cooking and food. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, sure, yeah, I was, uh, you know, went through my kind of traditional education and graduated from college and decided to go to culinary school. Um, I grew up cooking with my family and our, you know, we it was very important to us to be centered around the table and to try different things. And my parents were very um, adventurous in their cooking. And it was fun, and I just I just love cooking, and it just was the natural place for me to go. Um, so I spent 20 years um, moving around to different areas of the country and um, working in different aspects of the industry, and then uh, had a restaurant in the mountains of western North Carolina for about 10 years. Huh. So there you are, always aware that this this big salt reservoir that was right, right under your home all that time, right? <laughs> right. You know, I just, I really didn't know a whole lot about it growing up, interestingly, um, because the salt production wasn't going on while I was young. Right. And um, none of the family talked about it. I knew we made salt. I just didn't know that much about it. And um, after I sold the restaurant, um, I really started digging into my past and family history and uh, what we really did. And, you know, I, I came across all this information about the salt industry, and I thought, wow, that's so fascinating. And at the same time, I was, my pantry at home was um, filling up with salts from around the world. Uh-huh. I was fascinated by the different crystals and the mineral contents and the different flavors and um, textures of salts and um and it was just like an aha moment where I said, you know, I, we have to be making salt again. There <laughs> well, wasn't any question. When when the salt was um, the the salt works was in its prime, and I have, I failed to mention the name. It's um, because I talked about your uh, relative William Dickinson, but the name of the salt works is J Q Dickinson Salt Works. Was it always J Q Dickinson? Um. Originally, or the name Dickinson. of the company was Dickinson and Shrewsbury because William Dickinson went into business with his brother-in-law, Droll Shrewsbury, and then they had a, a falling out. And then in 1832, um, William started his own salt company, which he named for his first grandson, whose name was John Quincy Dickinson. I know, so that's what I wondered. Where did the JQ come from? Yeah. Right. So, um, and it that. It was called J.Q. Dickinson and Company, uh-huh. and then when my brother and I revived the business in 2013, it was important for us to keep that um, heritage and legacy, and so we 
named it J.Q. Dickinson Salt Works. Right. How much salt was being produced, and where, and was it, I mean, used all over the, the country? Um, it was. So I don't know exactly how much they were producing on this property, uh, but in the Valley, all the producers, they um, were producing about 3 million bushels a year, and a bushel of salt about 70 pounds. Hmm. And the majority of that was going to Cincinnati to um, cure meat, cure and preserve meats. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, it was it was a big business. I mean, I had seen some old historic photos online, and, the, and they were, it was being shipped on barges, down rivers and things. I mean, Oh, yeah. Was, it was an enormous business. All right. Um, it's something that one doesn't really, you know, think about, you know, the salt coming from particularly West Virginia. I mean, of course, it does have a, a mining you know, background, but, you know. And it's really what started the, the coal industry here because uh, when they ran out of trees to stoke their furnaces, they, they realized how rich these mountains were with coal, so they put in uh, punch mines into the coal seams, and they learned how to create coal furnaces. Huh. And um, so salt, you know, really predates the coal industry, natural gas and um, this valley grew up to be very key in the chemical industry as well. Uh, companies like Dow and DuPont and Union Carbide and FMC came in here to um, put wells in to extract minerals from the brine, as well as chlorides and calcium products and uh, magnesium chlorides and things like that for growing chemical industry. Hmm. Well, then along comes two young people, well, you know, uh, you and your brother, what you said you discovered um, some of the history. Uh, when when was that aha moment that you decided maybe we could do this? Um, it was in 2012. I had that, and I was living in North Carolina, and um, I didn't really tell anybody at first. And I was like, "Oh, how are we going <laughs> to do this?" And this is kind of a crazy idea. And I'm not even living in West Virginia, so I. Like, okay, I've got to figure some things out. I put it on the back burner, and about six months later, it just it was like an itch. I couldn't stop scratching. It was just I had to, to create this business. So I, I wrote a business plan and did a lot of research, and then I called my brother and said, who was living here in, in the Charleston area, and said, okay, I've got this idea, and I think it's viable. Uh, what do you think? And um, at first he was a little hesitant, and then uh, he got on board, and we... In May of 2013, we put our well in uh, using the logs uh, that our ancestors had used in the past. Hmm. We knew exactly I, where we were drilling. And yeah, I was going to say, had you, had you known, how did, did you create a new drilling site, or you just used what was there, what existed? Um, we decided to create a new drilling site. We, we, there were eight wells on this property, and we thought briefly about using one of those, but... Um, they have iron pipes in them, and we didn't want to contaminate the source by trying to get uh, new piping down. So right. we decided to put our own well in, and it um, worked out. Wow. That's, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, and, and you had said that, um, oh, from these, so you had a lot of old historical records uh, of the business. So, I mean, you, you knew... That it was there, you knew their methods, right? Yes. Um, and and then uh, you decided 
to make this more sustainable and and uh, more natural, right? Yes. Which we are going to talk about uh, after we take a short break because I want to talk all about the salt itself and your processes and um, and well, as I said, the salt and okay. and what's going on. So stay tuned, and we'll be back after a brief break. Stop calling me. I don't want to speak. Stop calling me. I don't want to speak to you. My This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I am talking with Nancy Bruns, who is... Nancy, what is your exact title? Owner, proprietor, president? <laughs> um, I am co-founder and CEO. Co-founder and CEO, and salt harvester. Salt <laughs> right, harvester. Major salt harvester, right. Jack of all trades. Yeah. Right. Um, I have a couple questions in, in, um, about our discussion earlier. The first is... Um, did you have or did you find on the property any of the old salt remaining? Was there any? Yes. In fact, there are several jars of it that are marked for different um, uses. So there's something they called Sunday salt. They had, um, and I'm not really sure what that means exactly, and they had uh, salt for making cheese, and they had um, salts for curing, and from what I can tell, it's a different, um, there's a different texture to them a little bit. Uh-huh. But I, it took me about three years to open a jar. Um, but I did that a couple of years ago because I wanted to taste it and see how it was compared to our salt. And it's almost exactly the same. Huh, interesting. And has the farm, um, the old family property, been in your family consistently con- throughout? Yes, since 1832. Wow, I mean that's actually owned by my third cousins, and um, so we we lease property from them. Uh huh. 
Yeah, that was a big question because so often these things fall out of the family, and then you have to go through the you know the process of of uh, buying it back and getting you know access to it. But that's that's great that it stayed in the family uh, all that time. So, yeah, and there's really um, there are remnants of the the business here. The old furnace is still visible. There's a um, a couple of silos where they stored the salt down by the river. Um, the old salt office that has all these records in it um, looked like it. Uh, somebody locked the door and never went back in. Huh. You know, so it's it's really neat to what see. What a treasure trove for you! Wow. It is. It's it's amazing. We feel very lucky to be able to have all these records from our ancestors. Right. Well, now you say they store the salt in a, a silo. Um, how did I mean after they they worked they dried it out in the furnace for all that time. So they just took the brine and then evaporated the water in a furnace? Correct. And then stored it in a silo, but didn't it get damp and kind of You know, I don't know. It, it's actually made of um, tile. Oh. Interestingly. Yeah. So yeah. it may have been, um, you know, airtight in some way. Yeah. yeah. And then it had, you know, like silos do, a way to fill barrels at the bottom. And then they there was a ramp that went down the river to the to the barges and flat boats, so they could load them up. Yeah, I mean, it, you think about it, It salt is not, I mean, it, yes, it's stable in, in one sense, but it's also fragile because if it gets wet, it's gone, right? It is, yeah, and then you have to evaporate it again. Start it all over again, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> we have learned a lot about humidity. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you have. Um, the... Well, I saw a picture of an old bottle of salt, and I wondered, well, I didn't know if salt was in it or not, but it was one of the old old bottles, so that's why I was curious to know if you had had the opportunity to taste the salt, and that's interesting that it tastes exactly the same as yours today. Well, now tell me about the process that you and your brother employ and, and, the, and how you've set up the whole salt business. Um, sure. So it's really important to us as we revive this to do it in a very clean way, um, have a very low environmental footprint, and to um, be very sustainable. So uh, we chose solar evaporation. Um, it's much, much slower, of course, but it is, um, it's the best way, we feel. And so we we pump our brine uh, from the well, which is is just like a water well. If you couldn't get your municipal water and you had to put in a water well, Mm -hmm. that's exactly the driller we called. Mm -hmm. And um, we put it into big um, 2,500-gallon tanks. Um, The the brine has a lot of iron in it. And um, early on, it was known as Great Canal Red Salt, because of this iron content, and um, but you know, pallets at that point in the early 1800s were nothing like the sensitivity of our pallets today. So they didn't care about things like oh, a slight metallic flavor to it, which really isn't um, something that's very desirable. And I don't think that's going to be a trend that comes in anytime soon. <laughs> so we <clears throat> we learned to let that iron oxidize, and then it settles, and then we capture that separately, and we. We do sell that as a um, natural dye for natural fibers, or we have artists that use it for tinting clays and glazes and paints. And um, Oh, that's very cool. I like that. Yeah, and then, then after that's clarified, that brine, then we let it uh, feed into three evaporation sunhouses. 
um, where it, you know, we're taking it from about 4.5% salinity to 15% salinity. Uh, during that time, we have a calcium um, carbonate that precipitates out, um, which makes the salt a little bit bitter and discolors it. So we want that process to happen uh, separately from crystallization. Mm. And then we um, move it to another sun house, where, which we call the granary, which is, where, which is a traditional word in um, salt making, which is where the grains form or the crystals form. And uh, then we hand harvest it. Um, and then we, we dry it and package it. So you actually, I mean, these, I saw a picture. In fact, I posted one on the, on our show page of the, of uh, the Heritage Radio website. And it looks like a giant, I could say it's like a hoop house or a greenhouse. Yeah, exactly. And, Very but, simple. But quite large. <laughs> and, yeah. um, um, and you have two of these that you said? We have four. Four. Actually. Wow. And, and, um, the video, well, I'll tell people, if they go to your website, and you tell me it's jqsalt.com? No, J- jqd. jqdsalt.com. jqdsalt.com. And yep. the D is for Dickinson. He was the, he was, who's hard at all, Dickinson. right? Dickinson, yep. <laughs> right. jqdsalt.com. There are some interesting videos, and you can see the, you know, the, the hand harvesting process, and it's, I mean, it really is done by hand. There's no other way you can it really is. scrape it off these, what is it, is it a, a plast? What are you scraping it from? Here's this giant greenhouse or hoop house, and then like a table covered with what? It's uh, um, a high density polyethylene okay. uh, black plastic. It's stable at high temperatures and mm-hmm. it's food safe. And um, being black is great color for <laughs> you know retaining heat. Yeah. And um, so that's what we put the brine on and let it evaporate and crystallize. The whole process takes. About at its fastest, it's about five weeks. That was my next question. How from, long does this take? <laughs> from well to jar, and um, five weeks is not bad. I mean, that's during the high summer season. I mean, yes. So about you know this time of year, if we get it's been a little rainy lately, but um, you know June, July, August, September are are key months, and um, you know usually around five weeks. And we're getting more and more efficient every year. We're learning. You know, there's no, you know, salt-making-for-dummies book out there. We've really had to kind of create our own methods, and um, we learn every year. Okay, let's, you know, in the winter when we're not making salt, we say, okay, let's tweak this a little bit. I think that should help with our efficiency, or we're learning more about evaporation rates and what's affecting it. And All right. So we're... We're so generally always, during the winter, is it sort of double the time or at this um, point? We actually stop making it in November. Oh, you do? Yeah. We take a break and get through the uh, Christmas season, which is always busy for us, and then we um, pick it back up in March. Yeah. How can you, I mean, how, how much do you produce in, in your one season? Um, this season, our goal is 20,000 pounds. Wow. Um, last year, we produced uh, just over 15,000. But we've um, expanded. You know, demand is rising, so mm-hmm. we're, we're going with it. What is, well, I have, before I get to that, well, I'll, I have to say, I have to ask it now. It's on my mind. Um, what's your major market? So we have um, about 600 retailers and restaurants around the co- 
around the country that use our salt mm-hmm. and sell it. Um, you know, one of the driving forces behind starting the business was really the so-called farm-to-table movement, which is, I think that term has been used and abused too much. But, yes. <laughs> but <clears throat> there is a genuine interest of people and chefs and consumers to really um, want and their desire to have these locally made, high-quality products right. that they, they can trust. And they're non-GMO, and they're you know it's organic, and and they trust the producer, and they taste good. Right. And um, so that was a, a key player in and you know starting this business again. That we knew there would be that market, and there really aren't that many producers in the U.S. You know, Japan has over 750 different uh, salt producers, and. Um, under and over 1,500 varieties of salt. Wow. So their palates are very, very uh, sensitive and uh, well-developed mm-hmm. in terms of the salt that they they use. So, um, you know, we just have a handful. Right. Well, it's interesting because you, you travel around, you, even um, you go into France, Italy, and now here there are um, salt stores and salt specialists and... Um, Mark Bitterman he was a guest on the show before. He's he's oh, got yeah, quite yeah. a few shows, quite a few shops now. And he said, "Sell me a." That's what he called himself, which <laughs> I think is a great word. <laughs> sell me a, yes. Uh, all right, sell me a. Yeah, okay, we um, actually I had heard it before, but <laughs> it still gets me every time somebody says it. A sell me a. You had mentioned uh, people, yes, are looking for a pure taste or or you know a a local, unadulterated taste. Tell me about the tasting notes of the salt that you produce. Do you produce, and and what types of salt you produce? Um, Sure. So every people are skeptical when they say, okay, you're making salt. Well, big deal. You know, is it Morton's (laughs) doing that? Like, yes, they are, but let's talk about what that means. And um, so to have naturally produced sea salt, and we consider our salt sea salt because it comes from a... Every salt comes from a sea of some sort, either ancient or current. Um, But if it's made naturally, it's going to retain um, other natural minerals. So um, our salt contains 6% trace minerals, uh, mostly calcium, magnesium, and potassium, and then about 25 other um, smaller mineral uh, content, uh-huh. and um, that gives our salt a very unique flavor. So if you compare the mineral content of our salt to, say, another salt that's made, say, from the North Atlantic or the South Pacific or Japan or um, in the Indian Ocean or the Mediterranean, the mineral content is going to vary. And our Himalayan salt, which has very high mineral, mineral content, and most people are familiar with that, mm-hmm. Um, it has 15% trace minerals in it, and that gives it that um, beautiful pink color. Right. Um, but I, I think of our salt as really bright, uh, bold flavor. It's uh, not a shy salt, for sure. It's um, You actually end up using a lot less of it than uh, regular table salt because it does have such a bright flavor. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a very uh, clean flavor, and it really does a lot to enhance enhanced foods. So we do sell what we call our heirloom salt, which is the basic uh, plain salt. And then we have um, a ramp salt, which 
I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with ramps, which well, are a, and, uh, which I when I read that I thought, wow, what a great thing to preserve it like that because the ramp season is so short. <laughs> Very short. <laughs> so it's not garlic salt, folks. It's ramp salt. And ramp that's, salt. Yeah, so it's, it's great. Yeah, it's a wild mountain onion that only has about a five to six week um, season, and people just go crazy for them. And so we have foragers that work for us, and then we dehydrate them and mix them in the salt. Um, we do keep it fairly mild because I still want the characteristics of our salt to come through as uh-huh. well as the ramps. Um, then we do an applewood smoked salt made from local applewood, and it's about a three-day smoking process. And uh, I really like applewood because it's a softer, sweeter wood. It's not overpowering. I think uh, woods like hickory and mesquite can be really overpowering. Right. And then again, you know, why use our salt if you're just going to make it taste like hickory? So, <laughs> um we do that, and then we take our smoked salt. We make a Bloody Mary salt, which we add uh, locally grown dried chilies and uh, garlic and celery seed to. makes a great rimmer for a Bloody Mary, but also um, it's great uh, tossed in roasted vegetables or sprinkled on uh, broiled fish. Um, it's a great appetizer, just an hors d'oeuvre to dip a cherry tomato in it. Mm. Uh, people love it like that. Yeah, radishes are everywhere right radishes. now. It's a good thing for radishes. Um, I will say that the I did taste um, two of the salts, the, the regular, uh, not regular, but your, what did you call it, the heirloom premium? The heirloom. Heirloom mm-hmm. um, sea salt and, and the smoked sea salt. Um, I was really tasting for, you know, tasting notes, comparing it to like a fleur de sel, a, you know, a, a, um, a Mediterranean or a... Um, uh, Atlantic sea salt, and it is. Uh, there's something very unique about it. It's yes, it has all those to me. In my in with my palate tasting the mineraliness of it. Uh, it's but you you said bright. It even yeah. in even in appearance, it's a very bright. It's a very white salt. It's very white. It has a nice, uh, beautiful sheen to it. Yeah, and very dry. Yeah, um, which gives it. More crunch, I think. Yeah, I love the texture of it. Um, and that's due, you know, you see these beautiful pyramidal thin flakes of salt, uh-huh. like um, Malden salt from England. Now, that, is- that we have to talk about the fact <laughs> that it's spelled differently. Malden, M-A-L-D-O-N, and your operation is located in Malden, M-A-L-D-E-N, Different countries? <laughs> in different countries, different spellings, right. and we cannot seem to find any relationship, but both but is have it, a long history of salt making. Absolutely. Uh, yes, but, this, but you were saying the Malden salt, yeah, is that flat flake, that flat... That flat yeah. flake, and that's because um, they heat the brine, they have furnaces, that uh-huh. they're heating the brine, and it's the flakes are developing more quickly, which creates a, a, an actual flake. Our salt is uh, chunkier and uh, crunchier. It actually holds up better on food. I think it doesn't yeah. dissolve as quickly. But you're right, and, that, and then in that case, you use less of it because you sprinkle a little bit on. You you taste the crunch. You chew the crunch. You don't need as much. Right. Yeah. So it um, really makes a difference, and that's yeah. It's developing slowly. Um, on our website, there's you know a, our process. I think is the video, and there's a yeah. time lapse video that shows 
the development of the crystals, and you can it's like a dance, and you can see them coming together, and then they, they cling together. These beautiful square crystals all move together to make bigger square crystals, <laughs> and um, it adds to that nice texture. And chefs really love that, um, that use it, because it does hold up well, and, you know, the food often has to sit for a minute or two before it's taken to the customer, so um, they're not losing that that finishing salt look. That's correct, right? Uh, so it is, but it does, and, and the tasting. I, I must say that I did note the mineraliness. I was looking for it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but I did taste it. But it does taste very clean. It is very clean so, flavor. Yeah, very nice. Um, a little sharper on my tongue, I think, than some of the other sea salts. It really, as you said, it's not a quiet. What'd you say? Not a. It's a. It's not a shy. Salt. Not a shy salt, right? <laughs> no, it's, it lets it's you know bold. it's there. Right? It does let you know it's there <laughs> yeah, right. for sure. Um, it, it's just a fascinating, fascinating process, and uh, and I encourage people if they're interested to to look at some of those videos on the site. And um, again, that's jqdsalt.com. And Nancy, um, you mentioned the byproduct of the of the iron rich um, residues that were filtered out of it, used as dyes. But there's another byproduct that um, that you that actually you sell too, right? We do. Um, it's another way we're trying to be 100% no waste and very sustainable. And um, it's called nagari, and it's the liquid minerals that don't cling to the salt crystals. So this is traditionally used to make tofu in Asian cultures. Huh. And um, magnesium chloride is the purest form of it, which often comes in a flake. But ours has actually 74 trace minerals. And it's, it's acidic, so it acts as a natural coagulant. Um, so being with my chef training, and I'm, I'm a carnivore at heart. Um, I like tofu, but I really like um, meat. Um, so I was like, what else can we do with this? So I had to put my chef hat on and think <laughs> about, okay, if it's coagulating soy milk, let's see what happens if we put it in cow's milk and goat's milk and sheep's milk. And I uh, made beautiful, beautiful ricotta cheese That's and fresh goat's cheese. And um, Sounds great. And I thought, okay, now we're, we're on to something. So um, it's still not that widely used. I do have a couple of cheesemakers that are using it and a few tofu producers, but we're producing more of it than we're selling. So we, we've looked for alternative ways, and um, we just uh, came out with a new product we're calling Dr. Dickinson's Natural Nagari Hangover Helper. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it actually, because it has all these minerals in it, which are electrolytes, if you're drinking too much, it replenishes your body very quickly because it's in liquid form, and you're not—you don't have to drink Gatorade or Pedialyte, right, which right. tastes terrible. And <laughs> it's great for athletes too, who have been sweating a lot, and you put all that back in your back in your system naturally because liquid minerals are absorbed so much more easily than minerals in solid form in a pill or something. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. But that—I mean—the whole thing about um, you know, being no waste and and sustainable. I mean, you can become very inventive with your. You have to, <laughs> and we had actually. I have. I wish I had her name, but it was a. You know, one of our customers came in and said she went on a tour, 
And uh, she said, I, you know, I started talking about the Nagari, and she said, you know, this may be too much information, but when I have a hangover, I take a shot of that, and it makes me feel better in like 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, and you said, aha. Oh, ding, ding, ding. I think I just... Uh, have a way to get rid of right. uh, Nagari. So. <laughs> right. Well, I can't wait to use it to, to make. I mean, it's so simple to make a ricotta cheese, and, and it is. I, and and that's recipes so, are on our website. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait to try that. That'll be great. Well, it's it's really just fascinating to me that it's this 400. Well, they trace it back to what 400 million year old um, ocean that existed. Yes. Yeah, and the, the name of that ocean again is Ipetus. I E P I-A-P-E-T-U-S. And Ipetus was a Greek titan. He was the father of Atlas, which is the, who the Atlantic was named after. And um, so it was a very early ocean. Yeah, indeed. Um, according to some of the records, it predated uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And, yes. And, uh, and so when Pangaea formed, it actually formed right in the Ipetus Ocean. So that's when it was absorbed and, and dried up. Huh. Interesting. Well, it's just such an interesting background, interesting history, and it's all been in your family all this time. I mean, now that you're being, you know, very uh, industrious and and bringing it back to life in a very new, new day form, a new wave form, very natural, very sustainable, all done by the sun, which is and a lot of hard work, but. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think it's just a marvelous product, and um, and interesting story and i thank you so much for for explaining all that to us and spending your time with us well thank you for having me linda and i can't wait for people to to become aware of it and try it some of the product you know actually there's a sponsor on our network i can be not sponsoring my show today but um root 11 potato chips oh yes they use the salt to to for them right? they, and their newest uh, flavor which is appalachian salt and cracked pepper oh huh. which is a great it's delicious and, um, so now they were when nice you... enough to put our story on the back of their oh, did, oh. on the back of their bag. Same and yeah, we love partnering with other Appalachian producers. That's important to us to well, create those partnerships. To um, so the next time you eat those chips, you think of the salt, and you'll know where it comes from. Absolutely, <laughs> right, right there under the ground. Well, again, thank you so much, and um, I wish you all the luck in this in this venture. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Okay. And thank you for listening. And I want to remind everyone out there that we are in our summer fun drive. And that is time for you to show a little love to Heritage Radio Network. And you can do so by maybe becoming a member or just giving a donation. And they have all different kinds of levels of sponsorship. And we have new gifts that go along with some of these sponsors, sponsorships. Um, if you become a member, you can get a brand new slice of pie. It's a pin that's at Heritage Radio Network pin with Roberta's Pizza. We do record out of the back of Roberta's Pizza Restaurant. And we have paid homage to Roberta's with this, um, with this little pizza pin. And it's also on a T-shirt. So you, there are so many different things you can do. And just show love, too. And go to heritageradionetwork.org. And you'll see, you can do backslash donate. Or go to the website, and you'll see a donate button in the upper right corner. Keep us alive. We are a sponsor-supported radio. So we do membership is is what keeps us going and keeps our voices on the air. So please give some time this summer to our summer drive and show us a little love. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.